Well, thank you so much. You've already gotten your nickels worth this morning, haven't you? Occasionally, things happen to us to remind us of our dependence on other people and other things. For instance, children are dependent upon their parents. They are dependent for food, for clothing, for shelter, for education, for all those things. So children are dependent upon their parents. Husbands are dependent upon their wives. I doubt that I would ever get out of the house with socks were it not for Linda. I don't know why that's true, but I I go in to get my socks, and I look in the sock drawer, and then I say, Linda, where are my socks? And she says, well, which ones? I said, the brown ones. She said, they're right there. I said, well, where were they a minute ago when I was looking for them? I don't understand how that happens. I can find a golf ball 50 yards in the trees, but I can't find my socks. And so we understand that we are dependent, that as husbands, we are dependent upon our wives uh, to make up for those, uh, those discrepancies in our life. We are dependent upon government, for instance, to protect us. We are dependent upon technology. And when the computer goes down, we just sit there waiting for somebody to do something so we can go back to work. The danger of dependence is that whatever we are dependent on has great power over our lives. For instance, the more we become dependent on the government, the more power government has over our lives. The the more dependent we become on technology, the more power technology has on our lives. Well, today we continue our series from the Old Testament. We go back again to the book of Isaiah. And the time to which we return is the time when Uzziah the king has died. Now, Uzziah had been a good king. He had served for 50 years. The result of that, however, was that the Hebrew people had become dependent upon him. They had relied upon him. They they found their confidence in their king, who had been a good king, and now he has died. And so they are in a situation of distress. That was true not only for the people, that was also true for Isaiah. So let's look at the vision in Isaiah chapter 6, beginning in verse number 1. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. Then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with the burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. And he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I, send me. 
Isaiah went into the temple and there he had a vision. I'm going to break the vision down into four parts. There are two parts towards God. There are two parts towards man. It is not unusual when God begins to do a work with someone that that work begins with vision. That was true with Abraham, Moses, Ezekiel, John. All of it began with a vision, and so it did with Isaiah. Isaiah had a vision of God. The king had died, and he saw the Lord. Matthew Henry wrote, Israel's king dies, but Israel's God still lives. When I was coming in to the church this morning, and uh, usually when I come on Sunday, it is dark this time of year, but with the time change, uh, the light was beginning to show. And as I was thinking about things driving in this morning and the status of the world and all of that, I began to think, no matter what happens out there, our God is on the throne. No matter what is going on around us, our God lives. Well, that was Isaiah. Isaiah had died, but then he had a vision of the Lord, and he saw him as being exalted. Look at verse number 1. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted with the train of his robe, filling the temple. One commentator said, King Uzziah dies in a hospital, but the king of kings still sits upon his throne. And so Isaiah said, on this day, when the people are disturbed as a result of their king having died, Isaiah said, but I saw the Lord. And he was exalted. He was exalted in name. You know in the Bible that the various names of God speak of particular characteristics of God. And so I'm going to show you a couple of them here. First of all, in verse number 3. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Now you will notice there that the word Lord is in all capital letters. When you see that in in the Bible, the name that is used there is Yahweh or Jehovah. That was the name that was given to Moses. You recall when Moses met the Lord at the burning bush, and he said, Moses, I want you to lead my people out of bondage. And Moses said, but why should Pharaoh listen to me? Why should anyone listen to me? Who shall I say sent me? And God said to, to him, I am who I am. That is the name that is used here. It speaks of the fact that God is the eternal God, that He has always existed, that He always exists, that He is the great I Am. It speaks of His eternal characteristic. But then look at verse number 1. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne. Now, that is not in all capital letters. It is a different word that is used there. It is Adonai. And it means the supreme sovereign one. So this is a different name. I saw the Lord. He is the supreme one. He is the sovereign one. That is the most exalted title that is given to God in the Old Testament. And that is the name that is used to refer to Jesus when the New Testament refers to Him as the Lord. It speaks of His sovereignty. Why is that important? 
Because, ladies and gentlemen, when we lose sight of the sovereignty of God, we are distressed when bad things happen. If we forget that God is supreme, if we forget that He is sovereign, then we are discouraged during difficult times. You remember when the disciples were with Jesus on the boat in the on the Sea of Galilee, and there was a storm that came up, and they became distressed. Why did they become distressed? Because they forgot that He was sovereign. And so the Bible says in Luke chapter 8, verses 23 and 24, But as they were sailing along, He fell asleep, and a fierce gale of wind descended upon the lake, and they began to be swamped and to be in danger, And they came to him and woke him up, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. Jesus was on the boat with them. There was a storm that was raging, and they saw the storm and forgot that Jesus was sovereign. And they said, Lord, we are perishing here. Lord, we are about to be overwhelmed by the waves. That's what happens to us, does it not? When you and I forget that God is on the throne, when we forget that He is sovereign and things happen in life, then we become discouraged, we become distressed because we forgot that our God is a sovereign God. Isaiah said, I saw the Lord. He was exalted. He was exalted in name. He was exalted in appearance. It says there in verse number 1 that the train of His robe was filling the temple. Now, in ancient days, a monarch's clothes spoke of his status. And the more elaborate the clothing, the more magnificent the train, the more powerful the God, the monarch. Isaiah said, when I saw the Lord, his train. Now, we've seen trains on brides. The train just Fill the room. We understand that because people, uh, people reach opinions about us by the way that we dress. So as, as Isaiah is saying, I saw the Lord on that day. He is exalted. He is exalted in name. He is Yahweh. He is Jehovah. He is Adonai. And His train fill the temple. He is a magnificent, exalted God. Then he saw God as being holy in verse number 2. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. The seraphim were angelic beings. The word seraphim means burning. Matthew Henry wrote, They burn in love to God and zeal for His glory and against sin, and He makes use of them as instruments of His wrath, when he is a consuming fire to his enemies. So the Bible says there were the seraphim, and they had six wings. With two they covered their face, which speaks of humility, because no one can look on the face of God and live. With two they covered their feet, which symbolizes submission. They were submissive to God. And the Bible says with two they flew. That is the ministry that they did. Whenever God gave them orders to do something, then they are able to do those things. Now, we look at their song in verse number 3. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. Their song was about the primary attribute of God, and that is His holiness. 
You know, in, in the written word, if we want to emphasize something, if we want to emphasize a word, we put it in bold letters or we underline it or we put it in italics. If we want to emphasize something verbally, we do so with the inflection of our voice. But in Scripture, when there is a desire to emphasize something, it is done with repetition. For instance, Jesus said, Verily, verily, I say unto you. Now, when Jesus said, Verily, verily, He is saying, I want you to especially pay attention to this. This is important. So He is emphasizing that this is something important through repetition. And here we see, Holy, holy, holy. God is holy. That's what is being emphasized here, that God is holy. Maynard Pittendrain wrote, In recent years, I think this is significant, so verily, verily, I say unto you, in recent years, theology and worship have emphasized the personal nature of God, the love of God, and the joy of God to such a degree that for some reason we've forgotten that our God is also a holy and awesome God. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. That's who Isaiah saw. He said, Isaiah had died and I saw the Lord. He is exalted and He is holy. Folks, you and I must remember, it must be written deep in our hearts that our God is a holy, holy, holy God. He's not the homeboy. He is God. Next, there's a vision of man's sinfulness. Now, if we have a vision of God, it naturally follows that we have a vision of our own sinfulness. Now, look at verse number 5. Then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, And I live among a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Do you notice there that Isaiah saw his own sin, not someone else's? He saw his own sin first. Not the preacher nor the deacon, but it's it's me, O Lord, standing in the need of prayer. All right, so he saw the Lord, he is exalted, he is holy, and then next he saw his own sin. Folks, that's what happens. When we get a true vision of God, then next we always see our own sinfulness. That's what happened to Simon Peter. The Bible says in Luke 5, 8, but when Simon Peter saw that, now let me tell you what that is. Jesus, the the disciples had been fishing all night. They had not caught anything. And Jesus said to them, throw the net over on the other side of the boat. Well, Simon Peter's a fisherman. Lord, we've been out here all night long. We had not caught anything. There are no fish out here. He said, but at your bidding, I'll do what you say to do. And so he put the net on the other side. So that's what that is. When Simon Peter saw that, he fell down at Jesus' feet saying, depart from me. For I am a sinful man, O Lord. You see? He saw the Lord. 
And then he saw his own sinfulness. The same thing is true with John in the, in the book of Revelation. In Revelation chapter 1, verse 17, the Scripture says, And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as a dead man. I think the unfortunate thing for the church today is that largely we have lost sight of the holiness of God. That he is an exalted, holy God. Steve Deneff wrote Whatever Became of Holiness, and he lists six side effects of what he calls God shrinking. He says there are six things that have happened as a result of us losing sight of the holiness of God. Number one, he says there is no law. Because there are no absolutes, then there is no absolute law. So there is no law. He said, secondly, there is no sin. If there is no law, then there is no violation of law. Thus, there is no sin. Thirdly, he says, there is no change. If there is no law and there is no sin, then there is nothing from which I should change. Everything's okay. I don't need to change anything just going the way I am because there's no law. No law, then there's no sin. If there's no sin, then there's no change. Fourthly, he says there's no gospel. If there is no law, there's no violation of the law. Therefore, there is no sin. I do not need to change. Thus, there is no reason for the gospel. And see, I, I think that we've been affected by that, and that's the reason that, that we do not do evangelism today. We, 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 we have forgotten, and I, I appreciate so much the Gideons and your evangelistic outreach and what you do. An understanding that man is lost without Jesus Christ, but if we lose the holiness of God, then there is no gospel. And he says, and then there is little commitment. And there's very little difference between those who say they are Christians today and those who say that they are not Christians today. And then he says the sixth thing is that doctrine becomes unimportant. It doesn't make any difference what you believe. Believe whatever you want to as long as, I mean, it might be, I might not like it, but if it's okay with you, then it's okay. And so doctrine is no longer important. Deneff said, from these consequences, it is evident that the devil does not need to make atheists of us in order to win the day. He only needs to remove the idea of the holiness of God, and we will soon after make atheists of ourselves. Isaiah saw the Lord. Verse number 5 again. I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined. It is natural that if we have a vision of a holy God, then we see our own sin. He said, I am ruined, or I am undone. That word means to come apart at the seams, to be unraveled. Psychologists describe it as personal disintegration. Isaiah said, I saw the Lord, and I don't have it together. I saw the Lord, and I am coming apart at the seams. So he saw his sin, and then he confessed his sin. Verse number 5, I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips. Now, what does that mean? I am a man of unclean lips. I'm not sure. You know, I mean, I've read different ideas about it. What does it mean, unclean? But that doesn't seem like a real bad thing, does it? I mean, unclean lips, that, that can't be 
too bad, is it? Well, apparently God thinks so. Because the Bible says in James 3, 6, The tongue is a fire, the very world of iniquity. The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of our life and is set on fire by hell. Do you know why? See, folks, here's the thing. With our tongue, we confess Christ unto salvation, or with our tongue, we deny Him to our damnation. It is with the tongue that we praise the Lord, or it is with the tongue that we blaspheme His name. It is with the tongue that we build others up, or it is with the tongue that we tear others down. I'm not sure what it meant when it says, I'm a man of unclean lips. But I know that Scripture speaks often about the importance and the power of our words. So whatever it is and whatever our sin is, we need to be aware of our sin, and we will be if we have a vision of God, and then we confess our sin. A.W. Tozer wrote, We have learned to live with unholiness and have come to look upon it as a natural and expected thing, but God has not. God has not. Understand that sin is significant to God in your life and in my life. So Isaiah said, I saw the Lord, and then I see that I'm a man of unclean lips, and then he sees a sinful world. He says, and I live among a people of unclean lips. He said, I live in a sinful world. So the first part of the visions, I saw the Lord exalted and holy. I saw my own sin. Thirdly, a vision of God's grace which overcomes my sin. Verse number 6. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. And he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. So we see now grace that comes from above. Matthew Henry wrote, Those that humble themselves in penitential shame and fear shall soon be encouraged and exalted. Those that are struck down with the visions of God's glory shall soon be raised up again with the visits of His Grace. Now, let me say something to you about this. A couple of things that I noticed in that. First of all, confession of sin, dealing with sin, is painful. The Bible says that the angel took a hot coal off the altar with tongs and brought to his lips. It is painful. Burning is painful. It is painful to deal with sin, is it not? It is painful to confess our sins before God. The sin of gossip. Whatever the sin is, it is painful. And that's what I think you see there. Isaiah is talking about the grace of God as the angel took the coal, the hot coal, off the altar and brought to his lips. It is painful, but it brings pardon. That is the thing that is significant as well. It is painful to deal with sin in our lives, but there is pardon when we do. And grace cleanses us. Look at verse number 7. 
And he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. Folks, God's grace is sufficient for unclean lips. God's grace is sufficient for sexual sin. You are familiar with the story in the New Testament of the woman who was caught in the very act of adultery, brought to the feet of Jesus, thrown before Him, and the religious people said to she, we caught her in the very act of adultery. What do you say? Moses says, stone her. What do you say? And Jesus said to the woman, I don't condemn you. Go and sin no more. Aren't you glad that God's grace is sufficient for our sin, no matter what they are? Whether it's unclean lips, whether it's sexual sin, whether it is something else, God's grace is sufficient to cleanse us. So there's a vision of God, there's a vision of my sin, there's a vision of God's grace, and then there's a vision of man's service. Do you see the order here? I see the Lord. I see my sin. I see His grace through which I am pardoned. And then I hear His call to service. Verse number 8. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? It is amazing to me, and I'm sure it is to you as well, that God chooses to use us to do His work. It seems to me that there would be a much more efficient way of doing it. He could tell the angels to do it. He's got those with the... Six wings anyway. He could get some other way to do it. But God in His mercy and in His sovereignty, for whatever reason, has chosen to use you. He has chosen to use you. God chooses to use people. Now, how do you respond? When God says, who will go for me? How do you respond? Well, there are some who reject it, obviously. For instance, when the Lord said to Moses, Moses... I want you to lead my people out of bondage. Do you remember Moses' response? Lord, you must have me confused with Aaron. I'm not able to speak. I'm tongue-tied. I, I can't speak. And so, but now, Aaron, we call him old golden tongue around the house. You, you probably meant, meant Aaron, not me. Whenever he came to Jeremiah and said, Jeremiah, I want you to be my prophet. Jeremiah said, Lord, not me. I'm too young. I don't have any experience. I don't know how to do that. I'm just a teenager. I'm a young person. I can't. So there are those who reject God's call, but some accept it. And so in verse number 8, then I said, here am I. Send me. Actually, in the language that is used there, it is like that Isaiah standing there jumping up and down with his hand up. He said, Lord, let me do it. Let me do it. Here am I. Send me, Lord. Let me do it. Let me conclude. Isaiah saw the Lord. And he saw the holiness of God, that God is exalted, that God is holy. I pray that you might see a holy, exalted God. Next, he saw his own sinfulness. And my friend, if you see God, then you will see your sinfulness. And I will see my sinfulness if I see God. He saw the Lord. He saw His sinfulness. He experienced God's grace. And you can also experience God's grace. And then He heard God's call. Who will go for me? It is my belief that things have not changed a lot. And this morning, if you will see the Lord, you will see your sin. 
And it's my prayer that you will experience His grace. And your response is, here am I, send me. In a moment, the choir is going to sing a hymn of invitation. The words that they will sing is, the Savior is waiting to enter your heart. Why don't you let Him come in? There's nothing in this world to keep you apart. What is your answer to Him? What is your answer to the Lord today? Would you stand with me, please, as we stand together and I'll pray. Our gracious Father and God, we come to you in this moment. As you extend to us the same question extended long ago. Who will go for me? Lord, I pray for those in whose hearts you're dealing today. Those who have never committed their lives to Jesus as Savior. That today they might say, here am I. They'll commit their lives to you. I pray, Father, for Christian people looking for church home, hearing your call to missions to something else, that they will respond to your invitation, here am I, send me. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. In just a moment, they're going to sing, what is your response to God? As he calls after you, what is your response to it? The staff is going to be here waiting on you today. Will you say, here am I? I commit my life to Christ. As they sing, you come, I'll greet you as you do.